Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your incredible mercy and grace in our lives. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. Our sovereign God, I, I pray that um, just in this moment, can you just make yourself known? Can we experience the realities of you? Can you comfort us? Can you comfort those that need to be comforted? Can you encourage those that need to be encouraged? Can you convict those that need to be convicted? Can you stir our hearts and our affections for you? Can you help us that as we open up your word, Lord, help us to treat your word with reverence, knowing that these are the words that you have spoken and that have been recorded and have been preserved for generations after generations so that we will never forget. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that that in our time of worship, as, 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 we, as we look at the scriptures, can you open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds? Can you help us that as we read about the Lord's judgment, can it devastate us as we throw ourselves on your mercy looking to Christ? But Lord, I also pray that it would provide us comfort knowing that you will vindicate us, that vengeance belongs to you, and that every wrong in the world, every injustices, you will make right as you're coming back to make all things new. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. And Lord, may we walk out of here looking to you, clinging to you, resting in you, pursuing you to speak to us Lord we ask all of this in Jesus name and all God's people said amen well good morning it's good seeing you guys happy fourth um, if you have your Bibles let's let's turn to to Nahum um, and so I'm going to give you a little while to get to the book of Nahum. Um, and so it is right in between Jonah and Habakkuk. Um, if you've gone to Matthew, you've gone too far. So it's about 20 pages uh, before uh, Matthew, give or take, at least in my, my Bible. Uh, and so today we are starting our summer series uh, through the book of Nahum. Uh, and so he here's my hope for us in this series. And, and it's kind of a, a two-far part, or at least here's my purpose. Here's why I think it's so important for us to study uh, the book uh, of Nahum is, is this, is that as we see the goodness, the patience, the power, the holiness, and the justice of the living God in our text, that in a sense it will comfort us knowing that evil will not prevail, but that God will have the final say in his judgment and that he is going to make every wrong in the world Right, Every injustice he's going to make right as he's going to lift up the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the outcast. 
But then the second purpose of our series, or my second hope for us in this series, is not only as we are comforted by this, by, 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 by God and his mercy and in his judgment, but that in this text we're also going to read about the wrath of God. That, that in a sense it will devastate us as we reflect on the reality and the severity of God's judgment and God's wrath. And really what it does is I hope that it kind of compels us to throw ourselves on God's mercy as we at the end of the day look to Christ. So what we're going to do in our text today, we're kind of um, going to look at an overview, the content, and then we're actually, at least I'm going to try to do it, read through the entire book. So we're going to read through the entire book of Nahum. Uh, don't worry, it takes about eight minutes, three chapters. And then we're only going to look at verse 1. So so Nahum is primarily a book of comfort to those who are being oppressed or those who are victims. But then on the other hand, it's also a book of warning to those who oppress others or those that are associated with the oppressor. As we see that when the end comes, that the Lord is slow to anger, but when he finally acts in his judgment, it is devastating and really it is critical for us to know that as we read about it and ask ourselves at the end of the day who are we putting our faith in who are we trusting in and so Nahum the book of Nahum actually uh, provides us uh, three primary questions about God the very first question that that it makes us answer uh, is this does God ever get angry enough about violence and cruelty to actually do something about it and the answer is yes and what makes God angry? And the answer in, in, in Nam is going to be endless cruelty. And what happens when God shows his anger? We're going to see that the earth trembles and the cities fall. Now, Nahum is probably one of the, re, uh, the least read books in the Old Testament. And, and so many readers, especially even today, kind of have difficulty reading the book of Nahum uh, just because of the description of God's judgment. Like for many of us, it can be very offensive because some of these verses are just so difficult for us to wrap our minds against as we read about the graphic descriptions of God's judgment in the scriptures. And so the easiest way for us uh, to, to read the book of Nahum as the word of God and what many people do is they kind of distance themselves between the book of Nahum and themselves. And so you have many people of how they try to handle Nahum by distancing themselves because just of the scandalizing words. So some interpreters will kind of look at Nahum and says, you know what? The prophet Nahum kind of represents this old, narrow, shallow, prophetism kind of like this false prophet in other words they look at the book of Nahum and they're saying you know what God is not really like this God did not really tell Nahum all of these things he just thought God said all of these things he is one of many of those prophets that were old crusty and angry and so technically he was a false prophet because this really is not the word of God Other commentators suggest that Nahum's words are rather a disgrace and shouldn't even be in Scripture. Many isolate uh, Nahum as kind of this specific part of ancient nationalistic history, this old war oracle that's no really longer relevant for us today. Or some of them saying, you know what, Nahum is kind of like the old oracles in the Old Testament, but since Jesus has come back, this is not how God operates anymore. He used to operate like that in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, he's operating in many ways. 
And some even look at the book of Nahum uh, and regarding God's judgment and saying those judgments aren't really towards us, but rather those judgments are towards the Ninevites and towards the enemies of God. But here's one of the things we have to understand. When God proclaimed his judgment, did he only proclaim it to the enemies of God's people or also to God's people? Think about it. Did he proclaim his judgment on Judah and Israel? Yeah, he did. And so here's the challenge for us as we read Nahum. The challenge for us is we have to read it as the living word of God that is geared towards us. And the best way for this text to serve its purposes is for us to not look at God's judgment as some reality that's never going to impact us, but rather as God's judgment as a real devastation towards us and our lives. And what that really does is it forces ourselves to throw ourselves on God's mercy as we look to, to Christ for a Savior. Because here's one of the things I've noticed with our misunderstanding with the gospel. For, for many of us, we, we read God's judgment and we say, yeah, that, that's not really towards me. That's towards other people. But here's my question then. Why do you need Jesus? If God's judgment is not geared towards you and is not relevant towards you, then technically you don't need a Savior. And so this is the difficulty of it. And so as we read Nahum and we read some of this graphic language, I, I want you to kind of put yourself as God's judgment towards you and look at the reality and the severity and the devastation of it. But it not just cripple you in a sense, but rather this is why you need God's mercy. This is why you need Jesus. But then also that as we read about the reality of it, maybe you find yourself in a difficult spot. Maybe you find yourself as life is being hard. Maybe you find yourself as being a victim or being oppressed. And so not only does God's judgment devastate us in a sense, but God's judgment also brings us comfort. Because guess what? At the end of the day, all those oppressors, all the evil and all the wrong that has been done towards you, God is going to make it right as he makes all things new. And it teaches us that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us, so we can trust him that his judgments are right. So let's read the entire book of Nahum, but as we read it, Nahum has three chapters, and I'm going to give you the outline of the text just so that you can kind of follow with me. Uh, so if you're taking notes, here's the very first outline. Chapter 1, um, we, we read about the destruction decreed. In other words, what God will do. So let's read chapter 1 and look at how God decrees these chapters and what God is going to do. Uh, Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are in the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea, and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry, but Sean and Carmel weather. Even the flower of Lebanon weathers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. 
Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. He will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image. From the house of our gods, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald, who proclaim peace. Celebrate festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. And so as we get to chapter 2, if you're taking notes, chapter 2, we read about the destruction described. In other words, how is God going to do it? Look at chapter 2. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob yes the majesty of Israel though ravagers have ravished them and ruined their vine branches the shields of his warriors are dyed red the valiant men are dressed in scarlet the fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and the spears are brandished The chariots dash madly through the streets. They run around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its walls. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are open and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, an abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hears, mouth, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair or the feeding grounds of the young lions? Where the lions and lioness prowl and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lioness. It filled up dens with the keel and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up and smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. And as we get to chapter 3, we see the destruction deserved. In other words, why God will do it. 
verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute. The attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirt over your face and will display your nakedness to nations, your shames to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you, then all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose ramparts was the sea, the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look. Your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The swords will cut you down. I will devour you like young locusts. Multiply yourself like young locusts. Multiply like the swarming locusts. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locusts strip the land and flies away. Your court officials are like swarming locusts and your scribe-like clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe and all who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Aren't you glad you came today? So obviously I just read the entire book of Nahum and there's going to be many questions, so let's walk through this. But today I just want to do the very first verse, okay? Look at verse 1 again. It says this. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the visions of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now now verse 1, there's just so much going on in here. So the prophet introduces himself with the following words. He says, the pronouncement, or some of your translations says, oracle or burden against concerning who? Concerning Nineveh. Now, now the word translated oracle in Hebrew is, can also be translated as pronouncement or, or, or burden. 
So in other words, what we know from this book, that it is an oracle. It is a pronouncement against. It is a burden. Now, an oracle, when normally appears throughout Scripture, is normally in literature written in the form of poetry. And Sarah, there's, there's all these figures of speeches. So he's not actually talking about real lions and real cubs and real lionesses. It's kind of using the, the, this poetic language to describe the oracle or the pronouncement against these people. Now, now, oracles throughout uh, the, the Bible possess the following characteristics. The very first characteristic that they possess is an oracle always originates from God. This is why an oracle is also called a burden. In other words, who in their right mind is going to present bad news just for the heck of it? Are you just going to do it because you like to, 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 to give bad news? Well, you're going to give bad news because you have been ordered to give bad news. So here the prophet is saying this oracle that originates from God is a burden that I have received and an obligation that I have to relate this information to you. So an oracle originates from God. The second characteristic is they are no, an oracle not only originates from God, but they're normally directed towards either a people or a nation. They emphasize and they encourage correction or punishment. And they always emphasize the sovereignty of God. So what we learn in verse 1 is that Nahum's pronouncement against Nineveh concerning Nineveh is from God. It was a burden that was given to Nahum to speak this word of judgment against Nineveh. Now, what do we know about Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire dominated the ancient East from about 900 B.C. to 612 B.C. And we know that the prophet Nahum and his prophetic word probably existed between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. And the reason why we know that, because we read in chapter 3 about Thebes' destruction, and we know that Thebes were destroyed, a big Egyptian city was destroyed in 663 B.C., and the Assyrian Empire was conquered by the Babylonians of 612 B.C. So right between 663 612 is where uh, Nahum existed. Nineveh represented everything that was wrong with the Assyrian Empire. Now, where else in the Bible do we read about Nineveh? Think about a prophet that was supposed to go to a city to proclaim the Lord, word of the Lord, and he rebelled against God, and what happened? A fish swallowed him up. So during Jonah's day, which was a hundred years before Nahum's day, Nineveh had a population of about 120,000. So you can just imagine a century later how much bigger the city had become. 
Nineveh was a city that was built to last. It had tall walls. It had over 200 watching towers. It had a encircled by a deep moat. It was a city that was a fortress and could not be conquered by any enemy, and it dominated for almost 300 years. At least so they thought. And the Assyrians, and we're going to see throughout our, 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 our series, were imperialistic. And they were brutal in their execution. As they were conquering nations and dominating nations, they showed no mercy. Some of the war crimes that they've committed, some of the most unspeakable, unthinkable acts that they have done for over three, almost 300 years, as they were conquering, as they were oppressing, as they were ruling over the ancient Near East. So here we find in the very first uh, verse, here is a pronouncement, a, a burden, an oracle that is from God through the prophet Nahum concerning these wicked people. Look at the, the second part of verse 1. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So the second part of verse 1 talks about the book of vision. In other words, this oracle that came from where? It, it came from God. It was originated by God. In other words, it was spoken by God was what? Not only was it spoken, but when we read about the book, what does that mean? The spoken word of God now was written down. So it wasn't just Nahum who thought God said it and who heard God said it and related the information to them, but rather he heard God say it and he wrote it down. And why did he write it down? Not just for the people to read, but also for the generations afterwards to read so that they could see the pronouncement against Nineveh and the fulfillment of that pronouncement to show the people that are reading the book of visions of Nahum that God is faithful to his word. So we can technically say, ah, Nahum made it up. Yeah, he was pretty lucky making it up because guess what happened? Here you had a fortress of a city that dominated the Near East, and it was completely destroyed. So he didn't just make it up. God said it, and he wrote it down. But this principle of the Word of God being recorded, being written down in a book, is a very important principle for us to understand. In other words, the preservation of the Word of God, and it's being preserved by being written down, is very important for us. In other words, not only does God speak, but his words are written down. The very word of God that came out of his mouth, God breathed, has been written down, has been recorded for us. So that the word of God will be passed on from generation to generation. So in a sense, when Nahum is saying the book of vision of Nahum the Elkishite, he is saying this is divine revelation. So when we read this, where did it come from? The very word, the very mouth of God. 
and we see the practice of the, 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 the spoken word of God written down as early as Moses. So when the law of the Lord was given to Moses, what did he do? He wrote every word down. Deuteronomy 31 verse 24 to 26 says this. When Moses had finished writing down on a scroll every single word of his law, he commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the Lord's covenant, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. So when Moses heard the word of God, he wrote it down. Why? Because he knew the people were going to forget the word of God. And by him writing it down, it serves as a witness against them. How do they know the law has been violated? Not just because God spoke it, but because his spoken word was written down and it serves as a testimony against them. Later on, Moses will even say in verse 20, Deuteronomy 31, verse 27, he says, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you are rebelling against the Lord now while I'm still alive, how much more will you rebel after I am dead? In other words, Moses knew that without the written word of God, people will disobey the Lord. They will forget. Now, going back to Nahum, I find it very interesting that during the day of Nahum, when he received the oracle from God and he wrote it down, it happened during the time of King Josiah. Now, if you know anything about King Josiah, real quick, the boy king, and he started a reformation in Jerusalem and in Judah. He moved away from idol worshiping that his father and grandfather followed, and he decided to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. So he started to bring about reformation and destroying the idols and getting people back to worshiping God. And he ordered the Levites to clean out the temple. The temple was filled with idols. All the sacred ornaments was kind of shoved to the side. And as they were destroying these idols and cleaning off the furniture and moving them exactly where they thought they should have moved, they discovered this old book that have been lost for generations after generations. They probably have never, they've heard of it, but they thought it was destroyed. And they discovered the law of Moses, the very words that Moses wrote down that God said. And it's read in the presence of Josiah. And as it's read, he's like deeply convicted because it's serving as a witness of how they've disobeyed the Lord. And what we see from Josiah's life is that Josiah's reformation of Judah came as a direct result of the rediscovery of the book of the Lord. So in other words, what we can learn even from Nahum and for us, and this teaches us that the recovery of the word of God is the only thing that can bring spiritual reformation. I know we've always said it, this, they're saying, and, and I disagree, don't disagree, but I think it's half true, they're saying, oh, our schools have gone to the wayside. Why? Because they've taken what out? They've taken prayer out. 
But what did they take out before prayer? The Word of God. If we want true spiritual reformation, it starts with us rediscovering the Word of God. When churches are going to the wayside, when you are, per- are personally, spiritually declining, spiritually dead, and spiritually in decay, you know why? Because you've abandoned and neglected the Word of God. And the only way for genuine spiritual reformation to take place in your heart for you to become spiritually alive is to rediscover the Word of God, to read it, to meditate upon it, to memorize it. And this is true for the individuals, this is true for the people of God and for societies where true spiritual reformation takes place. It also starts, always start with the recovery of the Word of God. Now, the importance of the written Word of God, the preserved Word of God, the Bible, can't be overstated for the Christian life. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, he says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And when Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God, what Scripture was he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. He was talking about Nahum, the book of vision of Nahum. And so when we think about the elements of teaching and rebuking and correcting and training and righteousness for God's people, what content is he talking about? The content of Nahum, the oracle concerning Nineveh. And this is why I think we should reject any idea of distancing ourselves between Nahum and our lives. In other words, here's my point. It's been a a long time making that point. Forgive me in that. Nahum is the word of God. It's been written down. Its message remains relevant to us today. It reveals to us who God is, what God hates, God's goodness, God's comfort, God's wrath, and God's judgment. And what this book shows us is that we need a Savior because God's judgment is severe. And it also shows us of what God's judgment is going to look like when the King comes back to make all things new. But Nahum also reveals to us this book is referred as a book of vision. What does he mean, a book of vision? Now, that Hebrew word vision is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's found in Proverbs 29, verse 18. This is what Proverbs 29, verse 18 says. It says, without revelation, people will run wild, but one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Some of you have heard it in churches being preached, without vision, the people perish. And so what's the most important thing in the church? 
vision. Because if you don't have the vision of the church, we run wild. But what does the ESV say? Maybe that will be a better description of what the text actually says. Where there is no prophetic vision, The people will cast off all restraints, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So in other words, this Hebrew term for vision means divine revelation. It it, it connotates with this idea of seeing. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1 where it was reported to us that the visions were rare in those days. In other words, people did not hear from God. God did not make himself known. He did not speak to them directly and gave them divine revelation. And what happened during those days? They all did what they thought was right in their own sight. So in other words, when we read the book of vision, it's not just the written word, that's, that's the, 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 the spoken word that's written down, but it's the divine revelation of, of God. And when we read it in Proverbs 29, verse 18, uh, the best way to look at it is this without divine revelation from God, without the written word being read, people run wild. They are without hope and without God. So, in other words, what that means for us when we read it in Nahum, the book of vision, when we read it in Proverbs 29, verse 18, is that one of the the biggest grace from the Lord is the preaching of the Word of God. Because when the Word of God is being preached, you are receiving divine revelation. And when you receive divine revelation, it is incredible grace that not only just saves you, but it also restrains evil. And what do we see in our culture? It's almost as this evil that was once restrained is now running wild. And how do we fight against it? Quit complaining and preach the word of God. It is divine revelation and it is incredible grace that saves us and restrains the evil in our lives. So so here's my point. We're going to wrap it up. Nahum is a revelation, a divine revelation from God. It is the word of God that needs to be heard in every generation. And in this word, what we've read, we are warned of the coming judgment of God. And what I want you to understand is that coming judgment is coming for you. Listen to me here. This coming judgment, don't distance yourself. And and this is what we, we have a tendency to do. When we read the word of God, we have a tendency to read ourselves as the hero of the story or the one who will not be under the judgment of God. Look at me here. The judgment of God is coming for you. Do not distance yourself. Now, I know what you're thinking, well, what what about Christ? If the judgment of God is coming to you, what is it forcing you to do? It forces you to throw yourself at the mercy of God and cling to Christ. But when you say the judgment of God is not coming for me, guess what you're not doing? You're not throwing yourself at the mercy of God. You're not looking to Christ because, hey, there's no judgment. 
don't be fooled. It is coming, and it's going to be severe. And even in Nahum, as we read about the judgment of God, that's restrained judgment. You read Revelation, that is full judgment. So don't distance yourself from the text. This is the divine revelation from God, the word of God. But then there's this tension. There's this reality of judgment that's devastating and they were petrified of. But then there's also this part of God's judgment that kind of brings us comfort. Because as we look at the evil of this world and the horrendous crimes that have been committed, the judgment of God reminds us that evil will not go unpunished. The Lord will make every wrong in the world right as he makes all things new and so god's judgment not only devastates us but it also comforts us and this is what nahum's book of divine revelation is all about the judgment that comforts his people but the judgment that also devastates people and so nahum should be read today as we see the faithfulness of God. Now, now let's transition here because it almost seems like this contradiction, like this wrath of God, the mercy and goodness of God. Like, how does it come together? Let me ask you this. Like, where in the Bible do we see God's wrath and God's mercy both fully displayed? The only where in the Bible that we see both fully displayed is where? The cross of Jesus Christ. This is what this table reminds us of. Because Paul says when we eat and drink at this table, we are declaring the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are declaring the cross of Christ. We're at the cross. God's wrath and God's mercy was on full display. This, this, this great exchange that almost took place where, where, where Jesus faced God's wrath that was geared towards me, where he paid for my sins, my trespasses, my transgressions, my rebellion. And instead of him punishing me for what I have willfully done wrong as I've rebelled against God, he punished his son in my place. That is called mercy. But then on top of it, it was my wickedness exchanged for Christ's righteousness. So in other words, not only did he pay for my sins on my behalf, which is mercy displayed in my life, but Jesus gives me, credits me his righteousness. That is called grace. And I receive this this mercy and this grace, how? I receive it only by faith, where I trust in the sufficiency and the death of the cross that his righteousness is good enough for me, that his suffering, that his price that he's paid is enough for me. And when I read about God's judgment that is geared towards my sin, when I'm convicted of my rebellion against God, 
what do I do? I don't say, well, it's not relevant to me. Well, I just don't like it. No. I look to the cross. Because it's at the cross God's judgment was taken care of by Jesus facing it. And His righteousness was somehow imputed to me. So then when God looks at me, He sees me as righteous. And now I belong to Him. I'm no longer my own. I've been set free from the bondages of sin. I've been made new. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And so when I find myself reading Nahum, and I find myself condemned, and I find myself convicted, when I find myself devastated by the judgment of God, what do I do? I don't deny it. I run to Christ. I look to Christ. But then on the flip side, when I find myself, life is hard. When I find myself being oppressed, when I find myself a victim of injustice, what do I do? I look to Jesus. Not only do I just look to the cross, but I also look to the tomb. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Death could not hold him. He has overcome death. And where is he right now? The king is sitting on his throne. And what is he going to do? He is faithful in coming back to make all things new, all things right. And every single injustice will be paid for. Vengeance is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And so wherever I find myself on the spectrum of being overwhelmed by the Lord's judgment or being comforted by the judgment, both of them are pointing me to Jesus. And so when we get to the table, this is what it's all about. It reminds me of this great exchange that took place between us and Christ. My sin, my rebellion for his righteousness. And this is what we meditate on. And this is why we can read God's judgment and not put it to the side, but be devastated by it as we see the reality and the severity of it. And it forces us to look to Christ. But then we can also take comfort knowing King Jesus is coming back to make all things new. So let me pray for us. We'll, we'll have uh, men and women hand out these elements as we reflect on the cross of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you faced God's wrath on my behalf, that you paid for my rebellion, my sin, my trespasses, my transgressions. And not only did you pay for it in full, but, but somehow you also credited me your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that in this moment, can you convict us of our sins? Can we see the reality and the severity of your judgment? Can we throw ourselves at your mercy as we look to you, Lord Jesus? Can we marvel at the cross? And when we find life to be unfair, can we look to you knowing that you're coming back to make all things right? Help us to meditate on these truths. Help us to, 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 to realize this wonderful gift that we've been given. And help us to continually cling to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord, I pray for us that, that we would never forget what you've done for us, that we would not put the judgment of God to the side, but that we would see the reality and the devastation of it, and that as the days of evil continues, that we would repent of our evilness, that we would turn to you, that we would cling to you, and that we would look to you, that we would be overwhelmed by you, that we would throw ourselves at your feet, knowing there is mercy and grace and is displayed in the cross of Christ. May we never take it for granted, and may we be overwhelmed by it. May we worship you as we say thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. And may we never forget. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.